Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today we have an important anniversary to celebrate, the 350th anniversary of the Battle of Sol Bay, fought on this day in 1672. Before we begin, thank you, username Pirate Hugh Hum, for your excellent review on iTunes. Five stars. He writes, hold fast now and touch iron if this isn't a fascinating series. I really enjoy that this covers all parts of maritime history. So much fun and well produced and fascinating. Thank you all involved great stuff there and if you are listening and are yet to rate or review us on itunes please do so it makes a huge difference in other people being able to discover our podcast and i promise i will read it out now back to the battle of Sol bay well it was fought between the dutch on one side and the combined english and french on the other so a very unusual example in english history of the english actually cooperating or at least trying to with the french as you will hear it did not quite go as planned perhaps we should not be surprised. It was fought in a fascinating period in naval history when so much was still being learned about how to actually fight at sea in broadside armed ships, and in particular in enormous fleets. Listen to this. In this battle, the Dutch had 75 ships, and they took on a combined fleet of 93 ships. So that's uh, 168 ships, which is 108 more ships than fought at the Battle of Trafalgar. Yup, that's 108 more ships. It's a period we should all know more about without any doubt. The beginnings of a professional navy, the first steps taken as the line of battle emerged as a tactic. It was a full 84 years after the Spanish Armada, and yet it was 122 years before the French Revolution. It was fought during the Third Anglo-Dutch War, a prolonged period of intense commercial rivalry between European powers, which had begun some 20 years beforehand with the First Anglo-Dutch War in 1652. 
By 1672, both sides had landed some almighty blows, but the engines of war that was producing ships and keeping them at sea was now working as well as it ever had. The Dutch, in particular, had achieved an astonishing success in the Second Dutch War, when they had sailed up the Medway to Chatham Dockyard, the most important dockyard in England, burned or captured three capital ships and ten more ships of the line, and towed away the flagship of the English fleet, HMS Royal Charles. In this, the Third War, the picture has become somewhat complicated with the inclusion of the French with their new navy. To help unpick the story, I spoke to David Davis, famed for many things, not least being the author of the excellent Matthew Quinton series of historical novels, eight of which, yes, eight, have already been published, all set in the 17th century. David is also a naval historian of some renown who has won many awards for his incisive and novel research. I'd personally recommend Britannia's Dragon and Naval History of Wales. I should also say that David is also the chairman of the Society for Nautical Research. But enough of these lengthy introductions. I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoyed talking with him. Here is the brilliant David Davis. David, thank you very much for joining me this morning. It's a pleasure, Sam. So, the Battle of Sol Bay. I always think with the Anglo-Dutch Wars, the, 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 this is the third Anglo-Dutch War, and the first question you need to ask is, what are the French up to? <laughs> it doesn't make sense unless you know what the French are doing. Oh, dear, no, that's a very big can of worms. OK, um, let, let's start <laughs> to unpick it, because, I mean, you know, with all battles, you can't... Get cut them away from their context, and I think that's particularly true of Sol Bay and the battles of the the Third Anglo-Dutch War. What what's basically happened is, of course, you've had the Second War ends in 1667, ends very badly for the English and Charles II, because of course you've had the humiliation of the Medway, the Royal Charles being towed away by the Dutch, and so on. Now, what happens after that is there's a short-lived attempt to get an alliance with the Dutch, but there's clearly a lot of mutual suspicion. Charles has a lot of um, desire for revenge, in a sense, after what's happened at, at Chatham. And he is looking for an alliance with Louis the Fourteenth. Louis the Fourteenth, who, of course, they are cousins, um, is also looking to strengthen his forces, potentially, because what Louis wants to do, and Charles, in a different way, wants to do, is to have a kind of a final showdown with the Dutch. From Louis XIV's point of view, he hates them for being Protestant, for being a republic, um, and they've also been prone to publishing some very unpleasant pamphlets about him and uh, some you know, very nasty images, suggesting he might be getting up to all sorts of naughty things, have been being produced in the Netherlands. So between them, Charles and Louis have all sorts of reasons for wanting to have a kind of a reckoning with the United Provinces of the Netherlands. And so what this leads to in 1670 is the notorious secret treaty of Dover, where the two of them make this deal by which they will both attack the Netherlands, um, the French taking the lead on land, the English by sea, and, um, of course, the most controversial part of the secret treaty of Dover is Charles's promise that he will make England Catholic again. Now, whether he takes that seriously, whether he believes a word of it, 
has been debated by historians for getting on for 200 years and there's still no real conclusion about it because Charles obviously played things very close to his chest throughout his life. But that is basically the background to it, that, you know, for their own reasons, Louis and Charles come together in this arrangement, this deal, that they are going to both attack the Netherlands. How worried were the Netherlands here? I mean, it sounds like the French attacking you from land and the English attacking you from sea is really quite a formidable opponent to face. Yes, it is. I mean, obviously, it took them a while to realise how serious things were getting. I mean, they still had nominally their alliance with England. This was, in theory, a triple alliance with Sweden as well. And, you know, there was still lip service being paid to that. But they didn't trust Charles. Um, And why should they? Nobody much did. Um, And so by sort of 1671... They are aware that something is afoot and there is quite a lot of, you know, um, defensive, defensive precautions being put in place. They're improving the defences and, and so forth. But in a way, of course, they are going to have to be passive in, the, in this because they're up against, you know, far and away the greatest land power in Western Europe. Um, all right, they could challenge the English at sea. They've done it very successfully very recently. But now, of course, they're facing the unknown quantity of a joint Anglo-French fleet. And that is the unique thing about the Third Dutch War and the Battle of Sol Bay within it, is that for very few times, really, in history, you've got English and French combined forces taking on a common enemy. It doesn't sound like a very good idea. I wonder if they even understood each other. Well, um, this was, again, something that they did think about from the very beginning. And Charles, um, who is, of course, extremely knowledgeable about all sorts of naval matters, does say quite early in this process, look, the French um, are potentially a risk because, of course, The point is the French have no experience of doing anything like this. The English and the Dutch have plenty of experience. The French Navy, to all intents and purposes, didn't exist 10 years earlier. It's been built virtually from scratch by Louis Minister Colbert. Um, And so the ships are superb, but they're untested. Um, And the officers and men are almost completely untested. So in the early days of when they get the ships together and so on, yeah, there are tremendous problems with um, manoeuvring errors and station keeping and all sorts of things. And what they're hoping is that obviously the French will just learn on the job, that as they do this, um, they will slowly get better as they learn from, you know, their English mentors. It's interesting that they managed to create such an amazing navy out of um, a, a nothing much at all. Uh, who did they turn to for the expertise? <laughs> well, of course, uh, that's the another interesting uh, element of all this. They're basically pinching technology and ideas from the English and the Dutch. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, 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 it's fairly incredible in our day and age, but of course there's really not much concept of security at the time, and so all nations send people who tore their each other's dockyards quite openly. 
Um, they just go around. They're often given tours. You know, so this question of exchange of technology, there are people working on this now. Um, and later on, of course, it becomes much more difficult. But in this period, everybody is still quite open about what's what's going on. So they have literally just been like magpies crabbing all their information from wherever they can. Yeah. I suppose it's not as bad as the 19th century when, when the English were literally making warships for other countries. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Um, so let's uh, go to Solbay. We touched very briefly on um, on Chatham, what happened at the, on the raid of the Medway in the previous war. Um, let, can we just talk about that briefly to give this a bit more context and just how 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 much the English were reeling from Dutch uh, naval success? Well, I think Charles himself definitely was. This was a very personal thing for him. Obviously, there was the sense of national humiliation. You get that very well in the... Uh, the poetry of the period, for example, in the likes of uh, Dryden um, and so on. The point about um, Chatham, of course, was that Charles and people who thought in the same way couched in terms of an invasion. I suppose there are kind of a topical element um, we could have here that, you know, one person's invasion is another person's special military operation. Um, but... As far as Charles is concerned, it was an invasion. You know, the Dutch flag had flown over Sheerness Fort. They'd come all the way up the Medway, right into the the waters of the dockyard. They destroyed several of his ships there. They towed away the Royal Charles. And, of course, he's named it. He'd renamed it from the Naseby at the Restoration. It was named after his father and himself. The loss of that ship was hugely personal. Um, and he does feel this, and there's even this bizarre scheme just before the Third Dutch War starts to send out what's effectively a, a almost an SAS operation um, to get the Royal Charles, which is still in Rotterdam being used to all intents and purposes as a, as a floating pub, um, and, and, to, and to, <laughs> to, 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 to bring it back to England. You know, it, it, it's still so raw, it's still so personal to Charles that he does, you know, he actually names a commander for the operation and so on and only sort of cancels it at, at the last minute. So, yeah, I mean, Chatham, I think, did run very deep and explains a lot about what's going on in the Third Dutch War. Yeah, let's um, think about the uh, who, who's in charge of the navies here or who's um, leading commanders, because the Dutch do have a bit of an ace up their sleeve in that they've got Michael de Reuter, and he's he's fantastic, isn't he? Why, why does he have such a formidable reputation? Well, I mean, he's had a, quite an interesting career. He's had quite a long career in, in merchant ships. You know, he has been um, certainly all over the Atlantic uh, world. I mean, he there is even a rumour that he um, spoke a bit of Irish, um, because of the time he'd spent in, in Ireland. And he had just been um, through the wars initially against the Spanish in the 1640s, then against the English in the 1650s and the 1660s. He had just developed this reputation as a very, very successful fighting commander um, because he had the he has tremendous tactical skill. Um, I think he's got an awareness of broad strategy which of course not all naval commanders do have and he by the 16 late 1660s early 1670s has this great reputation and of course it's greatly been enhanced by the fact that he is the man 
who commands the raid on the Medway. Now, in the five or six, seven-year-old Dutch film about uh, De Ruyter, um, he actually leads it as a kind of a commando attack, you know, at night on the dockyard at Chatham itself. It's turned into him, yeah. with swords, you know, drawn and raised, leading his, his men ashore. That's not the case, but certainly in terms of the planning of the operation, it is very much down to him. Um, so he is certainly regarded with huge respect by all parties at the start of the war. Um, and um, what about on the English side? Who Who's in charge of the English Navy? Well, in 1672, it's James, Duke of York, um, who is the king's younger brother. He's the heir to the throne, um, and he's the Lord High Admiral. He's also a very, very experienced warrior. He'd commanded the fleet in the 1665, at the start of the Second Dutch War. He's commanded armies in the 1650s. Through a slightly bizarre set of circumstances, he's even briefly been the Lord High Admiral of Spain. Um, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, James, you know, has a lot of credibility. Clearly, he's, he's completely different to De Ruyter, who's been a seaman born and bred. He's grown up on ships and so forth. Whereas James, of course, is is very, very different. And I think that reflects the way that they command. De Ruyter is much closer to the men. Um, James is much more aloof. Of course, in the end, that's going to be the trait that costs him his throne when he's King James II. And, but even so, I mean, James is not to be sniffed at as a naval commander by any means. I mean, in 1672, he did have a very, very high reputation. Um, and it's fascinating when these when they when they come together. So let's go to the battle. Um, I think it's particularly interesting because there's a certain amount of cat and mouse that goes on before the two fleets meet. Can you just paint us a picture of of, of um what's exactly going on in the Channel? Well, as I su suggested earlier, I mean the Dutch are very worried about the suggestion of the English and the French joining forces at sea. They could take they think they could take on one of them individually. But taking on both together is a problem. So what De Ruyter would ideally like to, to do is to try and stop the two fleets joining. And he is gearing up for a preemptive attack. Now, through various circumstances, that doesn't happen. And therefore, he has to go to Plan B. Plan B, obviously, the English and the French have joined. There are the various problems with manoeuvres and you know, the French knowing the ropes, as it were, that I suggested earlier. Um, but the two fleets have got together and they move around to Seoul Bay, Southwold Bay, on the coast of, of Suffolk. And that, for people who've been to Southwold and know that coast, was a much more pronounced feature than it now is. Now, I mean, Seoul Bay is just a very flat, straight stretch of coast you can't really see any there's no headlands or anything at all but of course that coast is particularly prone to coastal erosion it was much more of a proper bay um in mm. the 17th century and what de Ruyter decides on is is almost a pearl harbor idea in a way of a of um, a preemptive attack on the fleet to try and surprise the anglo-dutch fleet um, before it can come out properly, because of course what the plan is for the Anglo-Dutch fleet is to mount a blockade of the Dutch coast to stop 
shipping coming out in and out of the Netherlands because for the Dutch trade, seaborne trade, is their absolute lifeblood. And the English and the French know this, and they're going to try and cut it off. So de Reuter decides he's going to launch this surprise attack on the combined fleet while it's at anchor in Seoul Bay. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's interesting talking about the fear of the Dutch um, in terms of being blockaded. And it's something I've never been able to quite get straight in my head is whether the Dutch coast is whether or the Dutch in general are easy to blockade because they're up that end of the channel or because of their coastline they're incredibly difficult to actually pin down what's your view on that they're incredibly difficult partly because as you suggest I mean the coastal waters are very shallow remember that a lot of the um, French and English ships have got very deep drafts this is a difference between them and the Dutch because the Dutch, because of the nature of their waters and their harbours, tend to have much shallower drafts. So it's difficult in that sense. And, of course, given the prevailing winds, it's almost always, or very often at any rate, a lee shore. So if you have a fleet in the wrong place on the Dutch coast and a storm comes up, you can very easily get into serious trouble. And this happens. Um, you know, they do try blockades later on in, in the war on the, on the Dutch coast. Um, and, you know, they are hitting bad weather. It's very, very difficult to maintain ships on that station. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a real issue. I mean, I think it's one of those things where there's a difference between the theory that's cooked up by people on shore and the actual practice that seamen encounter out on the ocean. Um, because the practicality of trying to mount a 24-7 blockade of the Dutch coast is tremendous. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting how all the pieces fell together. So the two fleets meet um, meet at Sol Bay, and it's the Dutch who do take the, the English by surprise. Yeah, very much so. I mean, especially because, you know, on the night, the Dutch attack early in the morning of 
May the 28th. And incidentally, of course, that's why we're talking about the battle now. We're coming up to the 350th anniversary. Um, the Dutch attack early in the morning and the English and the French aren't expecting them. Lots of the men are ashore. The Duke of York is ashore. The place where he actually spent the night still exists and it's a very nice restaurant with rooms um, and it's got a plaque and, and, and so on. Um, and it, they were so complacent that they actually healed the flagship, uh, the prince, over on its side to clean the hull, to careen it. Um, and a couple of hours later, of course, the Dutch are sighted and they've got to put it back upright again very, very quickly. James has got to get aboard. And in all the confusion caused by this attack in the very early hours and then through dawn, um, the great issue of the Battle of Soul Bay takes place because the fleet does get underway. The Dutch are coming in. Um, it's uh, roughly a southeasterly wind. They're uh, coming in pretty much a beam to that. And the two... English squadrons, the Red Squadron and the Blue Squadron, who are the two squadrons anchored more northerly in Seoul Bay, they get away to the north with the Blue leading. The Blue should have been the rear of the entire fleet, whereas the French, who should have been the Van Squadron, get away to the south. And I think part, you know, there are various explanations that have been suggested for this, including the great jackpot conspiracy theory, which we'll come to perhaps in a minute. Um, but really, if you actually think about the practicalities of it, how could they possibly have issued commands to the fleet and flag signals saying which tack they should have got underway on? And, you know, the French were the van squadron they would reasonably have expected i think the other two squadrons to follow them instead of which the two english squadrons sail off to the north the french to the south and this big gap appears um and that is immediately what causes the problem for the allied fleet at Seoul bay do the dutch take advantage of it and, and cut them in half well, in effect, they do, because what they do then is they send the Zeeland squadron under Adrian Bankert down to engage the French. And so the, it's almost a separate battle between the Zeeland squadron and the French. And it's a very, very hard fought, bloody battle. I mean, whatever problems they might, there might have been with the French squadron beforehand, in the battle itself, they acquit, they acquit themselves incredibly well. Um, and some very vicious fighting. As far as we know, about 450 French sailors are killed, including the rear admiral, who was given a very grand funeral in Rochester Cathedral, incidentally, because he was a he was a Protestant. And um, so you've got that battle happening way off to the south. You've got another battle with the two main fleets under De Reuter and James Duke of York further north, and the two don't join up. Um, at all during the day, to all intents and purposes. Um, and as I say, that then sows the seeds later on for a conspiracy theory. And maybe a bit, maybe it would be better if we talk about the two English squadrons first. Yeah, OK, we'll do that, and then we'll come back to the conspiracy theory. I do like a naval conspiracy theory. So what, what did the English get up to? OK, so um, they've gone up to the northwards. They're engaged by De Reuter's um, main fleet. 
Now, the thing with 17th century naval battles, and to an extent right through the Age of Sail, is that you target the flagships. And it's so often the case that the heaviest fighting is ar around the flagships, and the heaviest casualties are on the flagships. And that's very much what happens at Seoul Bay. Um, the Prince, the flagship of the entire fleet, but also the Red Squadron, comes under very heavy attack from De Reuter um, and his seconds, um, and is very, very badly damaged. Casualties are mounting, and people are saying to James, you have got to change your ship, because remember, this man is the heir to the throne. Um, yeah, yeah. If, if something had ha already happened to Charles II, you know, within the last 24 hours that they didn't know about, he might already be the king. These stakes are incredibly high. And James, who is brave, whatever faults he might have had, he's an incredibly brave man. Um, for a long, long time, he won't hear of it. He stays where he is. But eventually, even he has to admit the prince is too disabled to fight on. He switches his flag to the St. Michael. Then, a few hours later, the St. Michael is so disabled he has to f switch his flag for once more to the London. Um, so, you know, in other words, whenever people see James's standard, the standard of the Lord High Admiral of England, going up to the top of the mainmast, they attack where the standard is. Um, and we know that this is what he does. He all, on the rowing boats, as he's going from ship to ship, he takes the standard with him. Um, there's, there's no hiding place for these people. Um, so the red is having this incredibly heavy battle. The blue further north is having this incredibly heavy battle, which again centers on the flagship, which is the Royal James. And on her is the Earl of Sandwich, Edward Montagu, the first Earl of Sandwich, who, mm. of course, is very well known to history because he appears so much in Pepys's diary. He's the sort of the patron and the mentor of Pepys throughout the, the diary period. Um, he'd originally been one of Cromwell's generals at sea. And um, so Montague is, again, having this huge fight in the Royal James. Um, two Dutch fire ships attack the Royal James. They are repelled. Then a third one comes in, succeeds in grappling onto the bows. There's a superb painting in the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich of this particular incident. Um, and the Royal James can't get rid of this one and is burned. And I mean, completely burned. Um, and the casualties on her are, are absolutely horrendous. I mean, she had a crew of over 800. We're pretty certain that over 700 of them die. Wow. Because either they're burned or if they even get off the ship, of course, the vast majority of sailors in those days couldn't swim. Um, and... The, the great tragedy of the battle from the English side, of course, is that Sandwich is one of the killed. Um, and, you know, nobody knows exactly what's happened to him, and there are hopes he might have got off alive. But then a few days later, a fishing smack finds his body floating in the water. And obviously, after a few days in the water in the North Sea, um, you can't really recognise too much from facial features. They recognise him because he's got the star of the Order of the Garter um, on the tunic coat that he's wearing. So, I mean, combined, I mean, 
this with um, you know what happened at Chatham in the previous war. You, you know, with the loss of of the Royal Charles, you got the Royal James, Bernard Montagu's dead. Um, you know, it doesn't seem to be going very well for the for the navy. And of course, that is exactly where the conspiracy theory comes from, because. Even though, as I say, all the objective evidence says that the French really do very well in this battle, that the fact that they go the other way leads within a day, within hours, in fact, um, to the idea starting to develop that they'd gone the wrong way deliberately. Mm. Um, that, in other words, these are two mutually exclusive theories. Either... They had only joined up with the English in the first place to know the strengths and weaknesses of English naval methods and to find out about the dockyards and so on. You know, it was all ahead of the day when they would betray the English and attack themselves. Um, Or the alternative to that is that they just wanted to leave the English and the Dutch to hammer each other so much, take each other out in effect, that the French could then come in and just be the number one naval power in Western Europe, in effect. Mm. Um, and so this is where the seed is planted. And within days in the coffee houses in London and so on, this is going around. And then the subsequent events of the war, uh, particularly in 1673, at the battles there, where something fairly similar happens, particularly in the final battle of the war, that theory, that conspiracy, it just develops, it develops, it gets stronger and stronger until in the end Charles has no choice but to pull out of the war. Uh, Parliament is, you know, basically refusing to vote him any more money. Um, the war had always been incredibly unpopular from the start, you know, an alliance with Catholic France against the Protestant Dutch. Um, but really, it, it, you could almost say that this is the start of seeing the French as the great natural naval enemy. Um, That feeling that goes all the way through to, certainly to Trafalgar, arguably beyond. Um, Yeah, I know you've had the Hundred Years' War and so on in the Middle Ages, but there have been plenty of periods after that where there have been alliances um, between the English and the French. This is the last time you get that in a war, I think I'm right in saying, until the Crimean War. You know, it it, mm. it really marks a sea change in how um, the English think about the French. I'm not surprised with their new navy and um, and movements like that on the battlefield. It, it, it's slightly um, reminiscent of something from the Wars of the Roses. I wonder whether they got that suspicion from, or, you know, sort of those classic um, um, medieval examples of treachery. I'm not sure I believe it myself. I don't think the French did it on purpose. Yeah, no, I mean, undoubtedly they didn't. I mean, there's a slightly stronger case to be made for um, a conspiracy theory at the Battle of the Tessel in August 1673. Uh, Maybe we can talk about that next year when the 350th anniversary of that one comes (laughs) around. But no, I mean, at at Soul Bay, I I think it was just, it has to be put down to the, the sheer confusion um, of the circumstances in which the battle took place, um, and the fact, as I say, the absolutely objective evidence shows that the French fought very, very hard, very bravely, very well um, against an ex- a 
opponents in Adrian Bankert and the Zeeland ships who were incredibly experienced and, and battle-hardened. So I can see why the conspiracy theory developed, but there's certainly no grounds for it really in terms of this particular battle. I mean, I suppose the, the, the key um, factor in this battle is that it's not... It's not a knockout blow like Trafalgar was, you know, a hundred and however many years later. Um, and in it, the, the 17th century kind of style of naval warfare, it's almost like they couldn't they couldn't achieve the, the knockout blow that was then envisaged by later generations of historians and strategists. It was it was it was almost impossible to actually get there. And that meant that the, 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 the war wasn't finished. It carried on. Um, what do you think about that? I mean, is is that fair to say? Oh, yeah. I mean, without doubt. I mean, obviously, both sides claim victory, but then both sides always claim victory in 17th century naval battles and many other battles before and since. Um, in, in one sense, there's, you know, there's relatively little damage done. There's only two ships lost on the Dutch side, one on the English side, which was the Royal James, which was a big casualty, yes. But um, there is quite a huge attrition rate in captains, you know, the English fleet loses one admiral and eight captains, which is a fairly extraordinary number um, for mm. any battle. But no, I mean, in terms of strategic goals and so on, it was very indecisive. The Dutch retreated back to their own coast um, because the wind had changed. The wind had come in the favour of the Anglo-French fleet. Um, but, of course, the English and the French can't then mount the blockade as we as we talked about earlier, not very effectively. So, in a sense, the Dutch have come out of it better because they have prevented their enemies achieving their objective. For the Dutch, this war is defensive, overwhelmingly defensive, because, of course, literally, I think it's five days, maybe six days after the Battle of Sol Bay, the French army pours into the Netherlands, pours across the Rhine, and very nearly conquers the entire country. And the only thing that saves them is they basically cut the dikes, flood the area around Amsterdam. So again, you can't separate out Sol Bay and the naval war from the context of what's going on on land. The Dutch aren't aiming to win the war in terms of, you know, an out-and-out -out conquest of their enemies. I mean, that's clearly going to be impossible their war objective is survival. Pure and simple. I mean, for the Dutch, they, they call this the Rampyar, the year of disaster. And it literally is the survival of their entire country that's at stake. And Sol Bay, although it's a fairly small part of it, does contribute to the survival of the Dutch Republic, who, of course, then do what the Dutch Republic had turned, had did in times of crisis, throughout history, they turned to the nearest person they could find who was called William of Orange. Uh, and the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> A very good place to end. David, thank you very much indeed in sharing this battle. I, I look forward to coming back next year in 1673 in the Battle of the Textile. That will be another enjoyable one to talk about. But thank you very much indeed for your time. No problem, Sam. Thanks again. 
many thanks indeed for listening. Now, please check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast on YouTube. Don't just listen to the podcast. You can see all of the brilliant animations and videos we've been creating, particularly a fantastic new mini-series of films in which we film the world's best ship models with the latest camera equipment. Now, this podcast comes from both the Lloyd's Register Foundation and the Society for Nautical Research. So do please take the time to check out everything both of those wonderful institutions have been up to. You can find the Lloyd's Register Foundation's History Centre and Archive at hec.lrfoundation.org.uk and the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk where you can join up to enjoy all of the numerous perks of membership including four copies of the printed Mariner's Mirror Journal every year, online access to over a century's worth, yes, a century's worth of maritime history scholarship, online seminars, you can even come to dinner on board HMS Victory. What more could you possibly want? When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.